Welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Unraveling the enigma of Jack the River is like stepping into the shadows of the Victorian mystery, where cobblestone streets whisper chilling tales. Join us on this epic episode as we navigate the foggy lanes of history, chasing the ghostly footsteps of one of the world's most infamous figures. This is Scarlet Tavern, Mead, Murder, and More. Alright, so back. we are back with a brand new season going, starting out big um, with one of the biggest mysteries uh, in the world. Um, <clears throat> we want to apologize for the abrupt end of season one um, between our other show and personal lives and everything. Um, a lot of stuff got in the way and we just kind of abruptly ended. Um, now we will get back into some of that stuff, but we wanted to start out with a bang. Um, and now, uh, with a new season comes new people. Uh, and so now for most of our cases that we're going to look through is Ben's wife, Pam, who is also a former military police officer um, and also our researcher through everything that we do. So even if she's not here in the podcast with us, she will have a hand as she will be the researcher. So say hi to the folks. Hi, everyone. Um, bear with us as all of us have gotten hit with whatever snow bug has gone around um, as we're recording this. We've got some snow sitting outside and... Um, the weather's been up and down, so everybody's gotten sick. So please bear with us. Cough drops and clinics have <clears throat> been our best friends. Yes. So, without further ado, uh, let's look at what London looked like um, before the Ripper case. So, it, spoiler alert, it uh, wasn't pretty. Oh, it really, really <clears throat> wasn't. Like, doing this research, it was despicable of like just not even despicable it was more like just learning about all the stuff like I already knew a little bit about Jack the Ripper but doing the research on this <clears throat> and that and learning about everything before and during and after the case what we have now and people saying that we don't have a lot they really had nothing Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, in the late 1800s, London's East End was a place that was viewed by citizens with either compassion or utter contempt. Despite being an area where skilled immigrant Jews and Russians came to begin a new life and start businesses, the district was notorious for squalor, violence, and crime. England experienced an influx of Irish immigrants who swelled, uh, who swelled the populations of the major cities, including the East End of London. From 1882, Jewish, Jewish refugees fleeing pogroms and organized massacre of a particular ethnic group, that of Jewish people in Russia or Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in the Russian Empire and other areas of Eastern Europe, they all emigrated into the same area. The parish of Whitechapel in the East End became increasingly overcrowded, with the population increasing to approximately 80,000 inhabitants 
by 1888. Work and housing conditions worsened and a significant economic underclass developed. 55% of children born in the East End died before they were five years old. Robbery, violence, and alcohol dependency were commonplace, and the endemic poverty drove countless women to prostitution to survive daily. Anybody ever think that things are bad now? Just imagine what they were back then. Well, so we're getting to that. Um, the overcrowded population lived in hovels. The streets stank of filth and refuse, and the only way to earn a living was by criminal means, and for many women, prostitution. The economic problems in Whitechapel were accompanied by a steady rise in social tensions. Between 1886 and 1889, frequent demonstrations led to police intervention and public unrest, such as Bloody Sunday, um, and that is a crowd of marchers protesting about unemployment and the Irish Coercion Acts, as well as demanding the release of MP William O'Brien. Um, with their clash with the Metropolitan Police. And that happened in 1887. Correct. <clears throat> um, Anti-Semitism, crime, nativism, racism, social disturbance, and severe deprivation influenced public perceptions that Whitechapel was a notorious den of immorality. What? Who would ever think that? The neighborhood of Whitechapel, disease, alcoholism, and poverty raged the lives of thousands of souls. It was a place that was, as the Diocese of London reported, and as unexplored as Timbuktu. Which, back then, well, we have explored Timbuktu now, but back then, we knew nothing. There, there was that, yeah. uh, there's the phrase, like, there's the phrase, I'm going to take you all the way to Timbuktu, or yeah. all of that. That was because Timbuktu is as far as you can go. Yeah, it's just, a, it, just how it sounds, it's a... Ancient African city in the middle of the West African desert was that actually in many ways Timbuktu was actually more civil, more advanced, civil, and prosperous than the East End of London ever was. Ever was. Um, <clears throat> Whitechapel in the East End was like a festering sore on the face of Victorian London in the late nineteenth century. Prostitution was only illegal if the practice caused a public disturbance, and thousands of brothels and low rent lodging houses provided sexual services during the nineteenth century. At the time, the death or murder of a sex worker was seldomly reported in the press or discussed within polite society. The reality was that, quote-unquote, ladies of the night were subject to physical attacks, which sometimes resulted in death. In October 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Service estimated that there were 62 brothels and 1,200 women working as prostitutes in Whitechapel, with approximately 8,500 people residing in the 233 common lodging houses within Whitechapel every night, with a nightly price for a coffin bed being four pence, which is about two pounds uh, now. Which is about five dollars American. More or less, yeah. And the cost of sleeping upon a lean-to or a hangover rope stretch across the dormitory being two pence per person. And for those that don't know, a hangover rope is literally that. It is a thick piece of braided rope that was strung across and you were literally hung over it with both arms, and you were basically, for lack of a better term, you were in a crucifix position while you were sleeping. And if anyone ever wants to see a actual what it looked like, um, I don't know if this is a deleted scene, but it's only because I have the special edition of it, the movie From Hell, which is a fictionalized version of Jack the Ripper case. 
Uh, they actually featured it. It's literally, it's just as it says, it's long rope, you're hanging on it, and in the morning time, some man, some grouchy man will unceremoniously just loosen the rope, tell you've just, you're abruptly woken up, and he tells you to get the hell out. Yep. And the only relief from this miserable life was a bottle of gin bought for a couple of pence to give blessed oblivion. Has anyone ever tried gin? I've tried gin. I do not like it. It is way too dry. There's only one gin I want to try just because he is an angel from heaven, and that is aviation gin, which is Ryan Reynolds' gin. Oh, yeah. I would try it. He's an angel from heaven, so it's got to be blessed. (sighs) And this is coming from a pagan. (laughs) Um, So, but. I've never tried gin. Ryan Reynolds, I would love to have you on this podcast. That'd be great. Oh, yeah. I would love to have you in this room. <sighs> Ryan Reynolds, if you know what's good for you, you'll stay away. Wow. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, have you ever thought about playing D&D? He would be a great That would be, funny. be a bard. Be oh, Ryan he Reynolds would be a bard. A hundred percent a bard. I feel like he'd, he'd probably do the opposite and he'd be a paladin. Honestly, with our new system and that, I think... Kid, you would literally write a specific oh, I would. class I would write just for him. <laughs> um, Alright, so, the beginnings of Jack the Ripper. Fear and panic stalked the streets of London's East End when the police found five women brutally murdered in 1888. Jack the Ripper terrorized London between August and November 1888, killing at least five women and mutilating their bodies in an unusual manner known as the Canonical Five, indicating that the killer had a substantial knowledge of human anatomy. Marked by sadistic butchery, they suggested a mind more sociopathic and hateful than most citizens could comprehend. Jack the Ripper, <coughs> excuse me, Jack the Ripper was never captured or even identified and remains one of England's and the world's most infamous criminals. Several other murders occurring around that period have also been investigated as the work of quote-unquote leather apron. Um, and this is another nickname given to Jack the Ripper, and it comes from some eyewitness accounts during the killings of the Canonical Five. Some people claim to see a man in a leather apron around the area, not necessarily with some of the victims, but in the area, and this man was, a leather apron was synonymous with butchers. Well, um, it wasn't even was, only butchers. <clears throat> it was also, while I was doing the research, I found, I can't remember the name, but we'll get into it later, uh, in a later podcast, that it was also a leather worker. Um, and his nickname was Leather Apron, because he worked with leather. Yeah. Um <clears throat> So the killings electrified England. Suddenly, wealthy Londoners had to take notice of a dangerous world located at home in their midst. As the hunt for the unidentified killer dragged on, well-to-do Victorian society from Queen Victoria down grew obsessed by the case. In the city, Jack the Ripper became a stand-in for prejudices and fears of the London society. Anti-Semites used the murder to defame the Jews of the East End. The poor blamed the rich, and the rich blamed the poor. The terrible fate of the five dead women became fodder for the uh, burgeoning sensationalist press, while social activists seized on the case to clamor for relief from urban, urban poverty. 
the river case laid bare an uncomfortable irony. At the heart of a city that prided itself on spreading Pax Britannica around the world, a murderer walked free and none of the authorities could stop him. The mystery of Jack the Ripper began on August 31st, 1888, when the body of a dead woman was discovered on a Whitechapel street. Her throat had been cut, and her abdomen gouged open. Um, this next part, we're going to get into the investigations and the crimes. Um, we're not necessarily digging into the Canonical Five yet. That's our next episode, where we'll actually get into the Canonical Five. Um, but this does get a little bit into the investigation. Some of the pieces of what was found is talked about in here, so we will save viewer discretion or listener discretion is advised um, because, as you all know, if you've listened to us before, we do not leave anything out. We give you all the brutal, brutal and nasty details um, because, I mean, listen... To be honest, if you're listening to a true crime podcast, you're there for a you're reason. here for a reason. Yeah, we, you're you don't have a weak stomach, and you are as sick in the head as the rest of us. Hey, I have a weak stomach, but I still listen to true you're, you're, crime podcast. You guys are as sick in the head as the rest of us. <laughs> so, the culprit responsible for the murders of five prostitutes all took place within a mile of each other, and involved the districts of Whitechapel, Spitalfields. Allgate and the City of London. The investigation was initially conducted by the Metropolitan Police Whitechapel H Division Criminal Investigation Department, or CID, headed by Detective Inspector Edmund Reed. After the murder of Nichols, Detective Inspectors Frederick Oberline, Henry, Henry Moore, and Walter Andrews were sent from Central Office in Scotland Yard to assist. The City of London Police were involved under Detective Inspector James McWilliam after the Eddowes murder, which occurred within the City of London. The overall direction of the murder inquiries was hampered by the fact that the newly appointed head of the CID, Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson, was on leave in Switzerland between September 7th and October 6th during the time when Chapman, Stride, and Eddowes were killed. This prompted Colonel, uh, Colonel Sir Charles Warren Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police to appoint Chief Inspector Donald Swanson to coordinate the inquiry from Scotland Yard. This, this already I can tell is the old saying: "There's too many chefs in the kitchen." I mean, Edmund Reed in himself is would, would go on to have a pretty good career. career. Fred Adeline and all these others are pretty heavy hitters. Um, but I can only imagine these are the top detectives in each of their respective areas. Can only imagine trying to coordinate with you well, know. I mean, it's and, and it's you can like, cut this out if need be. But essentially, you, you're having a bunch of guys in this case that are going to have a dick measuring contest. Well, it's not. It's not just. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, <clears throat> for lack of a better word, but it's it's like having. Five captains on the same football team. Mm -hmm. It never works. You have so for those that don't know that don't know sports, you typically have a captain on offense, a captain on defense, captain on special teams. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Um, and typically your quarterback, then defense it can be anybody. Um, Cowboys, it's actually a it's a outside linebacker. Um, 
but it's whoever shows the most promise. Um, but yeah, this is like having all of those captains or having five CEOs of one business. All trying to say, like, here, run this. Exactly. Like and not talking to each other. Like I, I said, you can cut this out if need be. You have a group of men <clears throat> that are having a dick measuring contest yeah. about who's right. And it really doesn't help that your boss is out of the country. Like, For a month. It's like In the like middle a, of the investigation. Well, not... Okay, so, so... There was only one body at that point. What? When... When he was in vacation? On vacation. So Three. when he No, when know. he went on vacation, there was only one. Because it was September 7th, he started his vacation. By the time he came back, there was three more bodies. Yeah, but, I mean... He, Still a really bad time. Yeah, it but, is. I mean, it's not... You can't blame him for that. He's on vacation. Yeah. I mean, a murder's a murder. Yeah, yeah. because at know, that point... He didn't it was know like, it was a serial killer. I think it was like... The end of August he, was the first murder of the Canonical Five. He had a very good detective that should have solved that single murder case, so he wasn't worried about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I get it. It's just it's just all in the end. It's just he comes. Imagine it's just like okay, uh, watch the shop. He and comes back and it's everything's on fire. And like, it's not like uh, like I mean, this is the 1800s. It's not like their cell phones to call over and say, "Hey, this is going on." Um, and speaking of too many people in the same kitchen, 50 extra constables were sent to H Division in Whitechapel, <clears throat> partially to help with the investigation and partially to help maintain law and order during a time of panic. The number of plainclothes police officers increased from 6 to 20. Not, not a lie. Which, which, in, which not for eighty thousand people. No, this kind of and this also kind of tells me that even in the midst of this investigation, the the Home Secretary and everyone else in the, like the top part is just not taking this seriously. I mean, yeah. twenty plainclothes officers. Well, think about it. The, unfortunately, they were all deemed prostitutes. Mm-hmm. They weren't worth life, especially. And it was women, and that, and back then women didn't have rights. They were women essentially, were they were property. So you lose a prostitute, okay? Who cares? Unfortunately, that is the way it was back then. That they yeah. just didn't care. Yeah. To be honest, that's some in some places that's the way it still is. Yeah. yeah. So, from the beginning of the investigation, Scotland Yard was flummoxed. The only thing known for sure about Jack the Ripper, assuming, as most theorists do, that he acted alone, is that he killed women. According to Edmund Reed, one of the detectives assigned to investigate the case, these were the only facts. The five women were all active or former prostitutes. All the victims were from the lower class. All lived no more than a quarter of a mile from one another. And all the murders were committed after pub closing time. Reed's key facts can be added another salient detail. No one ever heard a single scream or cry for help, unusual for such a densely populated neighborhood. None of the bodies exhibited defense wounds, such as slashes or bruising on the hands or forearms. The one solid reported sighting of the killer was on the early morning of September 8, 1888, 
when, when a woman saw Annie Chapman accompanied by a quote-unquote foreigner of medium height wrapped in a dark cloak. They are believed to have met just after 5.30 a.m., and her body was found half an hour later. Like all his victims, there were no signs of resistance, and no one heard her cry out. Now, again, we're going to get a little more into a little more detail, especially in the canonical five of each victim, but this here, um, where they, nobody heard anything, and there's no defense wounds, this tells me that this, he is quite a bit bigger, able to overpower, and then he more than likely sat on top of them, with them laid on the ground, and probably had his hand over the mouth, pressing their head against the ground, um, and as we'll see, he slits all of their throats. That's how they die. So he presses on the ground, and then takes his dominant hand, and slices across the throat, and then starts to disembowel. And I'll add another thing to that, which um, I picked, what I never thought of, that I'm sure they would never, if they thought about it, they had, they probably never had a way of proving it, just because the time period, forensics, and blood analysis, probably, it was not a thing and had no way of doing it. I would go so far as to say these women were probably all drunk. Because think about it, there's no defensive well, wounds. No, there's no defensive wounds. And he was able to get, every time he was able to overpower them, like you said, he may have been physically beat more built in them, but they're still going to fight. So, But if they're already intoxicated to whatever degree, it would make a lot easier for them to surprise them. What I was going to say was that it is a known fact that they were all alcoholics. So, Which we will get into more with the Canonical Five. Um, so, <clears throat> the... The other aspect that all the cases had in common were, of course, the killer's use of a knife and this customary pattern of not only killing the women, but defiling their dead bodies. At least three of his victims were found with their internal organs removed, a detail that drove the sensationalist press into a day of the day into a frenzy. The police used eight main techniques to try and identify and catch Jack the Ripper. Postmortems and coroner reports, witness statements, observations and sketches... Photography, public information, identity parades, searches, and lures. Um, now, the police followed up information from the coroner's reports and autopsies. After Annie Chapman's murder, the coroner believed that the killer had considerable anatomical knowledge and skill. The belief led the police to follow up by questioning doctors, surgeons, butchers, and slaughterhouse workers. Butchers, slaughterers, surgeons, and physicians were suspected because of the manner of the mutilations. A surviving note from Major Henry Smith, acting commissioner of the city police, <coughs> indicates that the alibis of local butchers and slaughters were investigated, with the result that they were eliminated from the inquiry. A report from Inspector Swanson to the Home Office confirms that 26 or 76 butchers and slaughters were visited, and that the inquiry embossed all of their employees for the previous six months. Um, some contemporaneous figures, including Queen Victoria, thought the pattern of murders indicated that the culprit was a butcher or a cattle drover on one of the cattle boats that plied between London and mainland Europe. 
Whitechapel was close to the London docks, and usually such boats docked on Thursday or Friday and departed Saturday or Sunday. The cattle boats were examined, but the dates of the murders did not coincide with a single boat's movements, and the transfer of a crew member between boats was also ruled out. Um, and I believe some... Uh, so, again, these boats docked Thursday, Friday, left Saturday, Sunday, but some of these murders took place at the beginning of the week. Yeah, like Monday, so Tuesday, Wednesday. A lot of... We'll get more into this uh, next episode, <clears throat> but all the murders happened either at the beginning or the end of the week, at the beginning or the end of the month. So it was very detailed of the time frame of the murders. Um... <clears throat> Following the discovery of the body of Mary Jane Kelly in November, physician Thomas Bond was invited to perform an autopsy of her remains. His report makes for stomach-churning reading, even today. During his grim task, Bond noted similarities with the four previous deaths. The murderer slashed the victim's throat from one side to the other, then cut open the abdominal cavity. A theory molded by police was that the Ripper was a physician or even a surgeon, but Bond, who knew a thing or two about incisions, dismissed this. True to his nickname, the murderer was no precise cutter and lacked even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer. The police used eyewitness accounts to investigate the crime. These were unreliable and often contradictory, but the police questioned around 2,000 people. Um, and even to this day, I'm sure if you've watched any kind of police procedural You'll hear, oh, eyewitness testimonies can't be used in court. They don't, they're not accurate. And it's true. What happens is when, especially if it's a violent crime, a lot of times what happens is fight or flight kicks in. And a lot of times your mind is trying to block you, especially from a traumatic event, trying to block you and and kind of protect you. So a lot of times you'll see what makes more sense to you than what is actually happening. So let's say, for instance, that there is an alien probing somebody. I mean, I'm just... Something that... <laughs> this this is something that is so out there yeah. that your mind would want to protect you from. So you actually see a veterinarian performing something on an animal. It, 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 something like that where it, your mind's going to try and make the most sense of it so you're not going to see everything the way it's supposed to be. Well, no, I just don't see... Did I really go to the doctor's office? Was that really the doctor? <laughs> no. No. So that that wasn't the doctor he, he at was, was he gray? He was old. He was, he was a gray. <laughs> um, are you Travis Walton? Um, no, you're too broke to be Travis Walton. <laughs> Travis Walton's got had had some money, not anymore. Um, so the police conducted a number of observations, and when they discovered the bodies, writing down or sketching key features of the crime scene. Some photographs were taken of the bodies both before and after the postmortem and the scene of the crime. This was not a widespread practice, however, and it was probably the city of London police rather than the H Division which did so. After the double murder of Stride and Eddowes, the police distributed 80,000 leaflets requesting information from people in the nearby area. That means one per person, technically. Yeah. 
with the death of these five, it's about one per person. Yeah. Um, the police conducted searches of houses and buildings around the crime scene. Identity parades were used to try and get witnesses to identify the killer. This was inconclusive, but they did manage to rule out some suspects. For, so for those that don't know, we nowadays, we do a lineup. Uh, basically, the victim of a crime is actually there's two ways to do an identity. You can do an identity on scene, uh, which is typically when you know who the suspect is, you caught them more or less red-handed. They are sta- they are stood outside while the victim is in a vehicle, typically, and a light from usually the spotlight from a patrol car is shown on the on the suspects. And then the victim positively, positively identifies them. Now, the second one that is seen, and you see it in police procedurals all the time, is the lineup. So you'll you'll pull people out of your lockup, usually the drunk tanks and stuff like that. But honestly, these aren't used all that much anymore. Um, and they're brought out into a lineup, and ever all of the police know where if you have if you know who the suspect is and you have them and you're just trying to get the eyewitness and the victim to agree to it you have them in a specific spot then you have a few decoys and things like that and basically you get the victim to look identify who it was and get a positive ID then you pull them out Um, and for those that are wondering what this looks like the most realistic one is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, Seriously? No. But it is the best one. Anytime I think of a lineup, it's the Brooklyn Nine-Nine scene where they sing Backstreet Boys. Um, that's the guy. That's the one who killed my brother. Oh, oh my God. I totally forgot about that. Oh, my God. Um, I, if you have not seen it, go watch that. It's, it is hilarious. Brooklyn funny. Nine-Nine is one of my favorite police procedurals. Um, it's on our list because Andy, I have never seen it. Andy Samberg's a genius. Um, but, so this identity parades were kind of a precursor to this. Basically, instead of bringing everybody in, they would literally take suspects in a line and walk them through the city streets and see if people could identify. And they'd be like, nope, I was with him yesterday. I was with that person. I was with that person. And then they're pulling these people out of this line going, okay, he's out, he's out, he's out. Until they're left with one, then that's a suspect that they're going to start grilling. They These did not work out well. No. Um, yeah. Doing Luke these could, parades through 80,000 people. Plus well, the fact, what's the stuff? also oh, the sorry. fact that all these killings happened late at night, early morning hours. There was no light because there's no electricity at this time. It's gaslit. It's gas lamps or candles and stuff. So there's no light to verify. So all these people are just seeing a shadow of a man and all the witnesses even say it can't corroborate what witness. Not just that too is that they're, again, anti-Semitism is a huge thing at this point. So they're going, oh, he's, he's Jewish. It was him. To get the Jews plus, out. plus, a, plus a, <coughs> a little more nefarious. What's to stop somebody from just pulling your buddy out, saying, "Yeah, yeah, I, I saw him. We were at the pub yeah. all night," yeah. and he's like, "Yeah, get rid of him." 
how do you know he was lying? You were, you're literally trusting the person, and that's and that's say, why yeah, he, he was that. it's changed so much. Um, so, could you imagine if we did these parades to this day? <laughs> um, I could not imagine, especially with like some of the stuff that. Oh, I mean, there people also in these identity parades. There was positive identifiers, and then peoples in the crowds would kill them. Yeah. They would just murder them because they killed their family or whatever. Yeah, this seems like a very... Yeah, it was... Nobody really... It wasn't thought out. No. So like, hey, what if we did this? Great idea. Wait a minute. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. yeah, This this didn't go... I said what I thought it would. So, there were three clues in the Ripper case that the police uh, followed to varying degrees. A quarter mile from Edo's body, a bloody piece of her apron was found under a graffito written in chalk that read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Keep in mind, this is not Jews, J-E-W. It is J-U-W-E-S. Sir Charles Warren had this graffito removed because of fears about anti-Semitic reprisals. Now, here's from my police knowledge and my from from my training and experience as we say in official documents this is a big no-go honestly I don't we're not anti-semitic here but at this point when I'm catching a serial killer fuck anti-semitism I mean honestly if you take it that way I'm sorry but this is a key piece of evidence Mm -hmm. not only because this is written in chalk, so you get handwriting. Yep. Um, especially because in 1888, there's not that many educated people. And then on top of that, the way Jews is spelled, J-U-W-E-S. That's the wrong way to spell it. That is the wrong way to spell it. It could have been, for all we know, it could have been a slang for a certain so part of London. with the, that, we'll get more into it, but actually... The- uh, in that time frame, there was a lot more educated people that could read um, because of the Education Act of 1800 was passed that made it, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that you had to go to school. Yeah, but here though, it this part of London would not have been that big on that because number one, all the children were dying, and also they had to they had to help bring in an income. They were so. they were working. I mean, at eight years old, these children were going to work. They were doing. I mean, uh, a lot of them in this area chimney sweeps and just simple simple stuff, um, or even not so simple stuff like working in a factory yeah. or something. So, so a lot of them, unless you were a doctor or you were transplant from another area in this part of London, I'm not saying London overall, but in this part of London, they were not highly educated. And this is also showing to me where the, the, I'll, I'm just going to say it because I don't really know a nicer way to say it. This is where the incompetence is. Charles Warren should have known that, I mean, anti-Semitism is new. This is nobody. Does he really genuinely think that if people see this, this is going to push everyone? Like, oh my God! Before it was just 
calling you know calling Jews Lipskis or something like that because a little little fat fun fact that was the well, derogatory term for Jews at that time. So all he really did was just ruin potential evidence that. For all we knew, this this graffiti had been actually predated the body or the or the bloody apron. There, it could have been there for however long. But we, they never. Well, who knows now? He destroyed it. Yeah. Um, over three hundred letters were written to newspapers and the police from people claiming to be the Ripper. Although seen as hoaxes, some people believe a few may have genuinely been written by the killer. Um, one of the letters was sent to George Lusk, the chairperson of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee during the Ripper murders, along with half a kidney. The letter claimed the organ was from Catherine Edo's body, and we do know from that investigation that half of her kidney was missing. No, our, it wasn't half. Her whole kidney was her missing. Her whole left yes. kidney was missing. Um, it's later that you'll find out what mm. happened to the other half Correct. of that kidney, um, and it's very disturbing. So, this is, <clears throat> here's the thing, is, <clears throat> from my understanding, um, handwriting analysis is pretty old. We have been doing it for a very long time. It's not as good as it is now. Um, we can, so handwriting analysis, the way it used to work, is you would basically look, you would just compare handwritings. Yes. Um, and you would look at key strokes and stuff like that. Now, what's really cool is computers do it a lot more now. It used to be that people were physically looking at them just like fingerprints. But now, what's really cool about handwriting analysis, and I studied this when I was in college, is based off of the pen strokes and whether how depressed you make it, the way you make your loops, and the curves and the letters, you can tell if somebody's happy, sad, depressed, angry, all of that different things. You can tell emotions just based off of a person's handwriting. Um, now, again, back then, they couldn't have done it that far. They weren't that and big into all of it. with the graffito, um, with those letters, they could have... because. There was three letters. We'll get more into those letters later. Um, there's three letters that were suspected being sent from the Ripper himself for the fact that they had a lot of information that hadn't been released by the police yet. Correct. Um, they could have analyzed, like, compared the handwriting, but... Yep. I mean, hell, if they if fingerprinting had, any, had been anywhere near what it is today back then... They would have called them. You had to put yeah. his hand on the paper. <clears throat> um, well, even DNA analysis, because a lot of mm -hmm. those stuff, it wasn't, you had to lift to activate the yeah. seal. Um, so there were five key techniques that were not available to or were not used by the police in the Ripper investigation. Number one, as we just said, fingerprinting was not common until the 1890s. So the, the way, and again, um... We, we kind of break stuff down almost redundantly just because that we more than likely have a few listeners that, yes, they like true crime, but they're not sure how stuff works. So uh, that's kind of what makes us a little bit different is because of our law enforcement backgrounds, we're able to kind of break stuff down and tell you how a lot of stuff works. So fingerprinting is pretty easy. Um, 
the way that it's always been done is you have you have a powder. Um, it used to be iron. They've changed it now. It's more graphite than iron, um, just because of awesome. what iron. Well, not just that, but iron's not very safe to handle. Well, yeah, uh, it, it, it was iron, like uh, that. iron poisoning oh. and lead. Um, but so now it's more graphite than anything. So basically, you can shave the tip of a pencil off, and you can use that to help fingerprint. Just grind it into a dust. Um, so a lot of times it's graphite now, and again, that all depends on parts of the country and things like that. But and basically, you what happens is the oils react to the graphite; it sticks, and that's what shows the shape of the fingerprint. Then you typically use a clear piece of it's technically tape. The way what police use is tape and also cardboard so that it's more secure and safe and you literally pick that print right up off and that sticks to that and then you can now run it into a fingerprint scanner um, and that scanner is then going to go through the database basically you have different levels you have your local level and then your nation nationwide level and then if you get to that point that's when you start going to Interpol and things like that. Um, back then, basically, in the 1890s, when fingerprinting was more common, um, they, again, they did the same thing. They would do the fingerprinting, except they did not have computers. So what they did is they, hired, glass. they hired people to, all they did all day was analyze fingerprints. They are looking at multiple fingerprints, and again... Every fingerprint is, has a unique identifier, even from twins, unique identifiers. So what they're doing is they're going back and forth, and they would take a pencil on this, on this fingerprint, and they would do marks. And if these marks matched up, that was a match on fingerprints. Um, so, but the thing with that is that's all human eye, which means errors can happen, which means they more than likely caught a lot of innocent people yeah. because of a mistake. And so um, they also were not unable to analyze blood. Nowadays, super easy. Put the blood into a machine. It analyzes it, shows you your, your markers, um, and then you look at a database. Uh, and that is, that is how it's worked because if you were ever arrested and put into the system... Your DNA is now in the system forever. Um, even if all of your stuff gets wiped out and your your jacket gets cleaned and all of that, your DNA still stays in the system. Um, so, but back then, there's no way to there was blood. no way to analyze blood. No. Um, so they just didn't even think about it. Um, they also considered using bloodhounds to be used at the crime scene. However, the police did not make use of them. Now, here's the thing, is if the way bloodhounds work is they basically take a scent of the person that they're trying to find, and then they go find them. <laughs> but you don't have, you have nothing. The only thing that you can do is take that piece of fucking cloth 
that is from a victim, and guess what it's going to do? It's going to lead spread. you right back to the victim. Yep. So there's, unless you have a definitive piece of evidence that is from the culprit, a bloodhound is useless. This has one of those, the top brass made the decision, and I, I can just imagine. it was actually Sir Charles Warren that brought the bloodhounds in. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that has, this is a boss idea, because I can imagine Edmund Rain and Frederick Adeline literally just standing there like, what's this going to do? Probably nothing. But they got to let it go. They got to they gotta kind of, can't say anything, because the, it's the, the, what's the old saying? The boss may not always be right, but he's always the boss. Yeah. Um, although the formula for using body temperature to determine time of death has had been developed in the 1860s, the victim's body temperatures were not scientifically measured. Again, like we just said, there's a formula for doing that. None of us have ever been Emmys, so I'm not going to dig into the science of that. And it was also, a lot of the bodies were found almost immediately. I think the latest body that was found was the last canonical five, of the canonical five was Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, She was the one that took the longest to be found, but pretty much every victim was found within like a half hour of the murder where the blood was still fresh and yes, cooling. But that is also part of this. That is yeah. using that scientific means. Yep. Otherwise you have no idea unless there's an eyewitness account. And if I'm also not mistaken, Mary Jane was found in a room. Yes. Correct. Everybody she else was the only in, one that was correct. in the, a the room. The rest were all found in alleyways. Yeah. Um, or a street. corners. Yeah. And, they were but, out in the open. They were yeah, not. Yeah. So, again, none of us have been Emmys medical examiners. So, we're, like, I, I've i watched it be done, but I can't tell you the exact formula for how they do it. These people no, are I really re- fucking smart. Like, I'm a, I'm a medic. I can't do that. I literally go up, no pulse. Okay, time of death is 1850. Done. And that's it. And I've read forensic science books, and I don't even know the formula for that. Um, So identity sketches were developed by Bertillon, but were not put into common use until the 1890s. Not like it would have mattered, because... No one saw them. Nobody saw them. And one person, all they saw was a cloak. So... Well, there... This is going to be more in the Canonical 5 episode, but there were... A few people that actually had a good description I, of him. Uh, but I don't believe that. It, it's at night, not a lot of light. You yeah. can say you had a good description of him, but I doubt it because every single description was different. It, it, if if I if somebody claims, oh, there's there's one chicken, but the three of us say. I say that chicken's black, you say that chicken's red, you say that chicken's white. It's obviously not the same chicken. Yeah. Yeah. So, there, there's obviously three chickens, or none of us saw anything. It's, and we're just trying to get this shit done and over with. Yeah, it's like one of those social experiments they had. They tell, it's a, you have a long line of people, you tell someone the description at the, fr- at the beginning. It's tell, telephone. Yeah, oh, telephone, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I was trying to telephone. say. Yeah. And by the it's time it gets to the end, there's five people and uh, a cow. We, I, we I, need to, we need to, when everybody comes down for the summer, we need to record us doing an episode of Telephone. Oh, I hate Telephone. Uh, Critical Role did 
That's episodes of Telephone, and they're fucking amazing. All right. Um, so, <coughs> the police struggled to solve the Ripper case because of the lack of scientific techniques that were used to identify suspects later, um, including the fingerprint and blood analysis. Now, at the end of October 88, Robert Anderson asked police surgeon... Thomas Bond to give his opinion on the extent of the murderer's surgical skill and knowledge. The opinion offered by Bond on the character of the Whitechapel murderer is the, is the earliest surviving offender profile. Bond's assessment was based on his own examination of the most extensively mutilated victim in the postmortem notes from the four previous canonical murders. He wrote, All five murders, no doubt, was committed by the same hand. In the first four the thirds appear to have been cut left to right. In the last case, uh, owing to the extensive mutilation, it is impossible to say in what direction the fatal cut was made, but arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the women must have been lying down when murdered, and in every case the throat was cut first. Um, now... This means if he is cutting from left to right, he's right he is right-handed. It is very awkward. It's not impossible, but it's very awkward to when you're right-handed to cut from right to left. It's just very awkward, and you're not going to get the right Ex- angle. Especially with how deep these cuts went. Correct. A lot of them were almost beheaded. Yes, So, and we'll get into that with the canonical five, is... Um, a lot of these cuts hit the spinal cord from the front hit the spinal cord if they were not laying on the ground he would have decapitated them they were this hard and this is again you guys are tuning into a true crime podcast so um at this point when he is cutting I just know from personal experience of butchering and things like that that when he is slicing the throat this deep, he would have felt the grind of the spine against the blade. I won't go over it. No, no sound effects with this one, please. <laughs> I won't go over it now, but it's actually, I, after my own just reading, I've actually had my own theory about it, but I'll hold off on it now, but this actually kind of plays into it a yeah. little bit. Theories... At the end of the series. Oh, yes. Yes, yes um, Theories is... Any theories that you have, go to the end of the series. Um, Bond strongly opposed the idea that the murderer possessed any kind of scientific or anatomical knowledge, or even the technical knowledge of a butcher or a her slaughter. The killer must have been a man of solitary habits subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and ironic mania. With the character of the mutilations possibly indicating uh, satyriasis which is an uncontrollable or excessive sexual desire in a man. Bond also stated that the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. Again, I will get into my thoughts of his his analysis when we do the theories, because I have my own. Um, so, there is... Uh, a term called sexual sadism. A sexual sadist is somebody who gets off on on hurting people. So you'll also hear sadomas- 
a sadomasochist. That is somebody who gets off on hurting themselves. Um, and that is, if you've ever, actually, if you've ever seen, um, there, there's different movies that have some sexual sadomasochism in it. Um, and a lot of people start off with punishing themselves and then it turns into a sexual desire. Um, and we're not, and when we say sadomasochism, we're not talking your baseline BDSM stuff. We're talking, this is... I'm getting off by cutting off one of your fingers. Yeah. That, that is sadomasochism. Ow. Yeah. Um, so, the... I'm keeping my fingers to myself. <laughs> that is, again, I'll get into my theories at the end, but that kind of plays into this here. Um, so there is no evidence that the perpetrator engaged in any sexual activity with any of the victims, yet psychologists suppose that the penetration of the victims with a knife and leaving them on display in sexually degrading positions with the wounds exposed indicates that the perpetrator derives sexual pleasure from the attacks. This view is challenged by others who dismiss such hypothesis as insupportable supposition. Now. So. This, again, goes along with sadomasochism. Um, I, I believe that he could have sexually assaulted them. Again, rape kits did not exist back then. No. Nope. There was, and their bodies were so mutilated from the inside, there, there would have been no way to tell. Now, I, I will tell you, um, I've been, obviously I've never given a rape kit myself because... I'm a male, and but I've been around when they've been given and taken the reports and things like that. Um, I will tell you from personal experience, rape kits are not fun. They're not. Um, there's a lot of prodding and probing and swabbing, and it's not fun. It is. Um, it is mentally and physically degrading. And to get it one is. Done. It is highly. Um, it's highly technological. Yes. Which means they had no way to do it back then. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think people saying, oh no, this couldn't have happened. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, that's just people trying to put their two cents in. Um, now do I, do I think that he did get off by, and the penetration of the knife was a thing for him? Absolutely. The, the way that he did all of this, the way he left the victims, they, and the fact that they were all prostitutes says something. Um, and again, we'll get into it with the theory, and because that one of my other theories is from his upbringings and things like that. So, um, now H Division and the London Metropolitan Police faced five main problems and impediments in identifying the killer. The media coverage, the crossover between each division of the City of London Police, the lack of forensic evidence, the response of the public, and the Vigilance Committee. Now, the public response to the Ripper murders caused four key problems for the investigators. Over 300 hoax letters were written by people pretending to be the killer. This gave the police more leads to follow up, but it took a lot of time. And that just takes officers away from that could that could have been doing something else more productive to the case. Exactly. Yep. 
Um, witness statements were contradictory and unreliable, as we said, they always are. Mm-hmm. Um, the possibility of anti-Semitic reprisals meant the police erased the graffiti found near Catherine Eddo's apron, which may have been a clue to identify the killer. Um, and then the work of the vigilantes, such as the Vigilance Committee, caused problems for the police during their investigations. We will get into the Vigilance Committee later, um, but they should not have been there and should not have been around because no. they really fucked up the investigation. Um, Don't say. Now, Bond also attempted to understand the psychology of the killer and early exercise in criminal profiling, which was not developed until the 1970s. It was not enough for the Ripper to kill, he deduced. He also had to inflict excessive violence to the bodies afterward. The murderer must have been a man of physical strength and great coolness and daring. Even so, he concluded, he is quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. So, here's my issue with this. This man is a doctor, yes, but he is a medical doctor. Yeah. He is not a psychologist. In medical school, you do not do any kind of psychology until you start taking that specialty. And um, even and back then, like psychology was not psychology developed didn't at, exist. The yeah, only it was thing, not developed at all. Like No, it wasn't. The only thing they would have he would have had you would have had to have gone to what they called an alienist. That's what the, a psychiatrist was called back then. And even then they would have been just would have been possessed by the devil. Not necessarily that, that but there would have been a then, lot a lot of the things that we we know today didn't like just Psychology 101 didn't exist back then. He, it, I mean, it would have just been the same as Thomas Bond had done it yeah. as well. And I, I'm looking at this and I, I don't agree because not only just because Bond like, honestly seems to me as like he's like, oh well, I'm a doctor, I'm smart, I know. It's a no, yeah, it, it reeks of being, yeah. He, it reeks. Honestly, of, I don't think he was the killer. No, oh, God, no. He and that's only this. from my research. No, he he has too much of an ego, and he would have claimed it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now I'm criminal profiling him. How yeah. does he like it? Yeah. I uh, mean, he well, just everything about his thing, his supposition about everything, just strikes me as snobbish and dismissive of everything. I yeah, mean, especially, o- like, oh, he doesn't have any anatomical uh, knowledge. Knowledge, I mean, it's like... I mean, we'll, when we, we will get into with theories. The, the theories and then the canonical five. We will get into it, but there was you, the killer had to have some sort of atomical knowledge. Possibly, with yeah. how, anatomical. anatomical. And, unless, I'm also unless, stuffed unless, up unless so. he's testing atoms back in 1888. I'm, I'm also stuffed up, so you can't hear what the fuck I'm saying. Um, but just going off of like what I've read. That killer had to have some sort of knowledge of uh, the human body. It's possible. Um, like I said, we'll get into that. Um, I just found Bond to be very dismissive of everything. And let's also keep in mind, as we said, he was brought in at the end. He yeah. only actually ever examined Mary Jane in any and detail. Then, Everyone else, he just read somebody else's report, which yeah, was probably not report. very well done. Um, so, in the fall of 88, Jack the Ripper's murders suddenly stopped. London citizens wanted answers that would not come even more than a century later. The ongoing case has met with a number of hindrances, including lack of evidence, 
a gamut of misinformation and false testimony, and tight regulations by Scotland Yard. Jack the Ripper has been the topic of news stories for more than 130 years and will continue to be for decades to come. Most City of London police files relating to their investigation into the Whitechapel murders were destroyed in the Blitz. The surviving Metropolitan Police files allow a detailed view of investigative procedures in, in the Victorian era. A large team of police officers conducted house-to-house inquiries throughout Whitechapel. Forensic material was collected and examined. Suspects were identified, traced, and either examined more closely or eliminated from the inquiry. Modern police work follows the same pattern. More than 2,000 people were interviewed. Upwards of 300 people were investigated and 80 people were detained. Following the murders of Stride and Eddowes, the commissioner of the city of police, uh, of the city police, Sir James Fraser, offered a reward of 500 euros for the arrest of the Ripper, which was a lot of money back then. The Ripper investigation was a failure, both because it failed to identify and catch the killer, but also because it was badly criticized by the public and the press. It also raised against uh, the Home Secretary and the London Police Commissioner, who resigned soon afterwards. Now, in the media... There was a lot of competition between the London newspapers with 13 morning and 9 evening publications. They, therefore, competed fiercely to sensationalize the murders, creating a lot of misinformation as they did so. Tax reforms in the 1850s had enabled the publication of inexpensive newspapers with a wider circulation. These mushroomed in the later Victorian era to include mass circulation newspapers costing as little as a half penny along with the popular magazines such as the Illustrated Police News, which made the Ripper the beneficiary of previously unparalleled publicity. Consequently, at the height of the investigation, over one million copies of newspapers with extensive coverage devoted to the Whitechapel murders were sold each day. However, many of the articles were sensationalistic and speculative, and false information was regularly printed as fact. In addition, several articles speculation as to the identity of the Ripper alluded to local xenophobic rumors that the perpetrator was either Jewish or foreign. Because how could a, a true-born son of Britannia ever commit such heinous crimes? No. Um, That's what we call sarcasm, everyone. The, the Ripper murders mark an important watershed in the treatment of crime by journalists. Jack the Ripper was not the first serial killer, but his case was the first to create a worldwide media frenzy. Elementary Education Act of 1880, which had extended upon a previous act, made school attendance compulsory regardless of class. As such, by 1888, more working class people in England and Wales were literate. Um, And we mentioned that before. However, that section of London was still highly illiterate. Um... The interference of the press caused six key problems for the police investigation. They might add details to make their stories more interesting, basing a lot of their reporting on guesswork, rumors, and untrustworthy interviews. Some of them added every murder in the area to the Ripper's tally. Not like they do that today. Um, They criticized the police heavily. Not like they do that today. Uh, They printed a lot of anti-Semitic accusations, such as making sketches of suspects look stereotypically Jewish. Um, which, so, a lot of what we see, uh, what we saw in, like, the 20s and 30s kind of went back to this, where 
they were doing almost caricature arts. Um, yes. And the 20s and 30s were huge on that, where if they were Jewish, they drew them with a huge nose and l- loads of money, where mm-hmm. and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. So that, it actually, what we saw in the 20s and 30s here came from this. Mm-hmm. So the, it's called yellow journalism. It's, yep. it's that sensationalized uh, reporting. Uh, so they also created a lot of false leads that the police then had to follow up, wasting time. And then they accused a man called Harold Pizer, or Leather Apron, of the murders, despite the fact he had an alibi. And They've Harold, never done that before. Uh, Harold Pizer, that was the gentleman's name that I was trying to think of. He was, if I remember correctly, he was the leather worker mm-hmm. who worked with leather, leather and made uh, wore a leather apron. In early September, six days after the murder of Marianne Nichols, the Manchester Guardian reported whatever information may be in possession of the police, they deem it necessary to keep secret. It is believed their attention is particularly directed to a notorious character known as Leather Apron. Journalists were frustrated by the unwillingness of the CID to reveal the details of their investigation to the public, and so resorted to drafting reports of questionable veracity. Uh, imaginative descriptions of Leather Apron appeared in the press, but rival journalists dismissed these as a mythical outgrowth of the reporter's fancy. Now, I'll tell you right now, still to this day, parts of our investigations are kept quiet. Oh, yeah. yeah. For a reason. Because um, we we will talk about this when we get to some other serial killers. But there is a very famous serial killer who wore certain set of shoes. And a certain mayor went on the news and... From last season. Yes, we talked about this last season. A certain mayor went on the news and decided to say, yeah, we know the killer's wearing these shoes. Guess what? The killer took those shoes, threw them off a bridge, and bought new ones. Should we tell them who, who it was? Right. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker. Thank you, I, Mayor Bell. Uh, thank so, you for telling me, because I didn't yes. know who that So Richard was. Ramirez, which we covered in Season 1... Um, he wore very specific shoes. Uh, they they were very cheap, as Richard Ramirez did not have a lot of money. Um, and they knew the sh- from the shoe prints exactly what kind of shoes it was, all of that. He heard it on the news when he was at a hotel one day and proceeded to leave the hotel, take his shoes off, go to a bridge, and whoop, chuck them over into the water and bought new shoes and kept going and it took them longer to catch him because the mayor was a fucking dickwad idiot and decided to spill information so this is why we keep it secret because if the press would not have done half the stuff that they did more likely that they probably could have caught him Uh, or at least maybe made it easier Yeah. (sighs) Uh, after publication of the Dear Boss letter Jack the Ripper uh, which we will go over, supplanted Leather Apron as the name adopted by the press and public to describe another fabled London attacker, spring Jack, who leapt over walls to strike at his victims and escape as quickly as he came. Which is actually funny. It, it's he, a, he never killed anybody. I no. want to make that clear. That's why it's funny. Because he would literally 
jump over a wall, punch you in the fucking face, and then jump back over the wall and walk away. It was, it was hilarious. So, it, it, little brief tangent here, folks. Is Spring Hill Jack literally in, I believe, the set in the late, mid or late 1700s London, literally women were being accosted, either punched or in some cases they were stabbed and according to the description a very tall man in a top hat and a frock coat would, would run very fast and they chase him and he would appear to jump like way higher and longer than what was thought humanly possible and fun fact when we watch Alice in Wonderland why do you think the rabbit is dressed the way he is Oh. With um, the top hat and the tails, he was dressed just like him. Huh. And another and a, another case study, there's a school of thought that either Spring Hill Jack just didn't exist, because there's no, there's very, other than just these news reports of, from, taken from supposed victims or friends of victims, there's no police records of these women getting stabbed or attacked, or... It did happen, but again, they sensationalized it to the point that he just sounds like he a fairy tale. Like a folk hero. Well, not a, a folk fairy, hero, but, but like a fairy like, tale. Yeah. Like a, he's but, like something yeah, from a grim novel. You gotta, you gotta think about the time Alice in Wonderland was written. Yeah. So because, and who it was written by. Um, so, but that's th- why. Uh, think of that name, yep. and that, that is, will be in one of the th- in our theories. That is why he is dressed the way he is, is based off of. That person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the letters. <laughs> Over the course of the Whitechapel murders, the police, newspapers, and other individuals received hundreds of letters regarding the case. Some letters were well-intentioned offers of advice as how to catch the killer, but the vast majority were either hoaxes or useless. Public fascination spiked after September 27, 1888, when both Central News Agency and the police received a letter claiming to be from the killer. He talked to them for pursuing false leads and vowed in broad London English, I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Uh, three days later... I have no idea what that means. Here, wait, maybe I should do it in the accent. I am down on whores. I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Still Arrested. Still doesn't make sense. Oh, okay, yeah, it sounds like that still, just, still that just make made it sound fancier. <clears throat> three days later... The mutilated bodies of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were found. A number of letters were allegedly sent by the killer to the London Metropolitan's Metropolitan Police Service, often known as Scotland Yard, taunting officers about his gruesome activities and speculating on murders to come. The moniker Jack the Ripper originates from a letter which may have been a hoax published at the time of the attacks. The murderer is also sometimes thought to have made contact by letter with several public figures. These letters, like the chalk message, have never been proved to be authentic and may have been hoaxes. Hundreds of letters claim to have been written by the killer himself, and three of these are prominent. The Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jack postcard, and the From Hell letter. The Dear Boss letter, dated 25 September and postmarked 27 September, 1888, was received that day by the Central News Agency and was forwarded to Scotland Yard on 29 September. Man, they waited a full two days to do that. Yeah. Um, initially, it was considered a hoax, but when Eddowes was found three days later after the letter's postmark, with a section of one ear obliquely cut from her body, 
The promise of the author to clip the lady's ears off gained attention. Edo's ear appears to have been nicked by the killer incidentally during the attack, and the letter's writer threats to send the ears to the police was never conducted. The name Jack the Ripper was first used in this letter by the signatory and gained worldwide notoriety after its publication. Most of the letters that followed copied this letter's tone, with some authors adopting a pseudonym such as George of the High Rip Gang and Jack Sheridan the Ripper. Some sources claim that another letter dated 17 September 1888 was the first to use the name Jack the Ripper, but most experts believe that this was fake inserted into police records in the 20th century. Now, the Saucy Jack postcard was postmarked 1 October 1888 and was received the same day by the Central News Agency. The handwriting was like the Dear Boss letter and mentioned the canonical murders committed on 30 September, which the author refers to by writing double even this time. Double it, event. I double the event tea. this time. It has been argued that the postcard was posted before the murders were publicized, making it unlikely that a crank would hold that a prank would hold such knowledge of the crime. However, it was postmarked more than 24 hours after the killings occurred, long after details were known and publicized by journalists, and had become general community gossip by the residents of Whitechapel. Now, the From Hell letter was received by George Lusk, leader of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, on 16 October 88. The handwriting and style are unlike that of the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jack postcard. The letter came with a small box in which Lust discovered half of a human kidney preserved in spirits of wine, quote-unquote, which is ethanol. The killer had removed Edo's left kidney. The writer claimed that he fried and ate the missing kidney half. There's disagreement over the kidney. Some contend that it belonged to Edo's, while others argue that it was a macabre practical joke. Kidney was examined by Dr. Thomas Openshaw of the London Hospital, who determined that it was human and from the left side, but, contrary to false newspaper reports, he could not determine any other biological characteristics. Openshaw subsequently also received the letter signed, Jack the Ripper. Like I said, that kid, that left kidney of Edno's body would have came back up, and it was disturbing. Two. Um, Scotland Yard published uh, facsimiles of the Dear Boss letter and the postcard. The journalist was identified as Tom Bullen in a letter from Chief Inspector John Littlechild to George R. Sims dated 23 September 1913. Journalist named Fred Best reportedly confessed in 1931 that he and a colleague at had written the letter signed Jack the Ripper to heighten the interest in the murders and keep the business alive. Mm. That's never happened no. after that. Um, in addition to the contradictions, our unreliability of con- uh, contemporaneous accounts, attempts to identify the murderer hampered by the lack of any surviving forensic evidence. DNA analysis on extant letters is inconclusive. The available material has been managed too many times and is too contaminated to provide meaningful results. There have been mutually incompatible claims that DNA evidence points conclusively to two different suspects, Aaron Kaminsky, a Whitechapel barber, and artist Walter Sickert. The scientific methodology used to advance both claims by their proponents have also been criticized. And those two names will actually come up again um, when we go to the su- we get to the suspects and theories. Um, and then we're just gonna end 
with a little brief thing on the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Yeah, there wasn't a <coughs> lot on not. that, um, unfortunately. Vigilantes weren't huge back then. Not um, in England, at no. least. There, you, you see them pop up in a lot of areas like the Old West of the United States and other major cities. I mean, it's Tonto? just... Huh? Tonto? Tonto. <laughs> um... <clears throat> In September 1888, a group of volunteer citizens in London's East End formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. They patrolled the streets, looking for suspicious characters, partly because of the dissatisfaction with the failure of the police to apprehend the perpetrator, and because some members were concerned that the murders were affecting business in the area. The committee petitioned the government to raise a reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer, offered their own reward of 50 euros, the equivalent of between 5900 and 86000 in 2021. It's about close to ninety to 100000 U.S. dollars. Yeah. For information leading to his capture and hired private detectives to question witnesses independently. Um, did they hire the... Uh, uh, Pinkertons? Yeah. <laughs> oh. They hired uh, the Pinkertons. Yeah. Actually, the Pinkertons really weren't active in, in Europe. No. They would have just... I probably... I, fig- yeah, I, I have a feeling these private detectives were just the local goon squad, probably. Honestly, there. yeah. The Vigilance Committee caused three main problems in the case of Jack the Ripper. One, they were a group of business people and traders from Whitechapel who were frustrated by lack of police success and were annoyed about the lack of rewards offered for information, so they started their own reward system. No law enforcement experience whatsoever. Nope. Number two, they patrolled the streets with burning planks, made a lot of noise to deter the killer. They so hunted Frankenstein's monster. So, one of the ways that the police were trying to catch Jack the Ripper was lures. And obviously, with the Vigilance Committee doing this, those lures failed. Because they're going to any, they're just going to scare them off. Yep. yep. Um, and then, of course, the leader of the committee, George Lusk, was sent the from hell letter along with half a kidney. I really just find this this whole. I've always found this to be really suspect. George Lusk, yes, he may be head of the vigilance committee, but but who's who really knows who's sending it to him? Why? I, I really. And yeah. the fact is, yes, Karen Eddowes may be missing. Catherine. Catherine, excuse me. Catherine Eddowes may be missing a kidney, but there's there's no, without DNA, which is hampered, which lack of it is hampered already, how do you know that's her kidney? How do you know that's a human kidney? You don't. Well, no. Well, they did say it was a human kidney. They did. But again, how do you know it's hers? It's it's easy to tell if it's a human kidney, but just based off the size. Um, But again, how do you know it's hers? It was in the letter. Yeah. You don't. the letter supposedly stated that it was from the body of Catherine Eddowes. It was her left kidney and stuff. So, I mean, I mean it's 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 very easy how you could think, like, oh, she's missing half a kidney. Here's half. half. Ki- oh, she's missing a kidney. Here's mm-hmm. the other half. So, with everything that we went over, any closing statements for tonight's episode? Honestly, this case was fucked up from the beginning. Like, I, 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 I really, I think the police would struggle with this case, even if there, if this um, happened today, like, if it happened today, it wouldn't have been as much of a struggle due to the fact of all the, I still think it would have been a struggle. Oh yeah. It would have been I a struggle, think. but we would have had a lot more evidence, like, 
with all the stuff that we have nowadays, with like fingerprinting, DNA analysis, and stuff like that, we could have probably found something. Possibly. I, I think the odds would have been greater, but I still think this would have been a shit show. Yeah. Ex- exactly, because you have. Plus, it's in England. I mean, they, everything they do you is a shit show. Also, have. We have a lot of listeners in England, so that's why I'm we're joking. That. Everybody, God save the Queen or King. Well, now it's not God, the God did not save the Queen. No. She died. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but honestly, like, if it wasn't for the fact that, and we'll get more into where the bodies were found, if it wasn't for the fact that it was Catherine Eddowes wasn't murdered. Where she was, which was in the city of London, it might have been a little bit easier, but because she was technically murdered in city of London, that brought city of London police. Mm -hmm. So now you have all of these different detect, all these different police branches. And we even know from today's world that cross jurisdictions it's a nightmare it is a freaking nightmare everyone's bringing their own how they do it different personalities are clashing and there's never just be like right we had this case first you can help us but we're doing it our way how we were trained Mm -hmm. uh we can't even manage to do that these days um so that is it for tonight's episode um, we have three more parts for you guys, um, so keep an eye out for those, and then we're going to get into some other interesting stuff. Um, so, I want to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Please remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night.